On today's episode of I Believe Now What, we are going to talk about the Christian struggle with sin. I once heard a pastor say that as a Christian, we are done with sin, but sin is not done with us. Today, we are going to break down Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 as our main text. And if you have been struggling in this area of sin, I pray that this episode blesses you and gives you a deeper understanding on the fact that while our spirit has been made alive in Christ Jesus, we still live in a fallen world inside this fallen flesh that is full of temptations and sin, and those, those things wage war against us. But with the knowledge that we find in the Bible and through the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, we can fight back against those temptations. We can fight back against that sin that seems to just fester in our flesh. Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode. I hope you are having a wonderful day out there, wherever you are inside your week. Now, we are, as you heard from the intro, we're going to go ahead and continue our study through the book of Romans with the last half of Romans chapter 7. And I want to give a brief recap before we go ahead and jump into this. And as we talked about before, we're in the section of Romans that mainly focuses on sanctification, a.k.a. God setting us apart, a.k.a. God growing us in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and conforming us more and more to his image, the image of his son, Jesus And those chapters are chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Romans. Last time, we talked uh, through the very first half of Romans chapter 7 and mainly focused on the Christian's relationship in regards to the law, as in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and how we are dead to the law and now alive in Christ because Christ fulfilled the law for us because we could never be saved by our own works of the law. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ then imputed his righteousness and completion of the law to every single person who believes in him. Well, imputed his righteousness and completion of the law, it's the same thing. That's all part of his righteousness. (laughs) But this is how we can be made right in the eyes of God. It's all through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, as we get into today, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we go through this today in Romans chapter 7, the last half, I pray that you would just open our heart, open our mind to be able to receive whatever you want us to receive, Lord, that we put away preconceived notions that were false and only hold fast to what is true and good. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and everything you do for us. In your name, in your will, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we get into today's episode, 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 as you heard in the intro, today we're going to go over that second half of Romans 7. And if I had to title this message or give it a big idea, as my pastor says, it would be that we as Christians are done with sin, but sin is not done with us, just like you heard in the introduction. And I understand that sounds like a very depressing title because... I I once heard that saying from a pastor scrolling through YouTube some years back, and I remember him saying that. I wish I can give accreditation to who said that, but I I honestly can't remember. But one of the first things that kind of struck me was, man, that's kind of depressing. But then as I sort of dwelled on it longer and longer, that kind of stuck with me, and I started understanding what he was saying. And especially when you listen to his entire message, he made that point very clear. 
But needless to say, to, to the first ringing of the ears, that sounds really depressing. As a Christian, we're done with sin, but sin isn't done with us? Like, what? Wow, where's the hope in this? Where's the joy in this? But to make clear, while sin may not be done with us, as in our struggle with it, in our current life that we're living right now, this passage is by no means a free pass for believers to ever have a defeatist attitude or a, well, it's going to happen anyways type attitude, but rather knowing clearly that we have the ability to fight that sin all through the power of the Holy Spirit, thanks be to Jesus Christ. And this is one reason why I believe the Apostle Paul made sure that he put the statement that he did in Romans chapter 6, just one chapter beforehand, so that Christians would know not to get this defeatist attitude. And what he said was, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you may obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Or in other words, yes, the struggle is real, but that is no excuse to let sin reign and take control of your body and honestly no excuse to keep practicing sin, but rather you are a new creation in Christ Jesus Make your body obey this new creation inside of you. Now, before we get any further, let's go ahead and just jump right into our passage so we can start talking about it, and let's go ahead and read it out loud. So Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 14 through 25, and if you have a Bible, please follow along because you might not know me, and <laughs> you, you want to make sure that I am telling you the right thing and verifying everything that I say. Never just take my word for it. Always verify and confirm for yourselves. Just like we always say in the military, trust but verify. All right, let's go ahead and jump into it, starting at verse 14, once again through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but rather the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, 
with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, as we go through this and we break down this verse, I'm going to keep, or passages, verses, I'm going to give application, but I wanted to give one big application right off the bat before we jump in. And this is actually something that I took from uh, what is called the Jesus Bible. This is published by Zondervan. Uh, I bought it a few years back, and I don't use it all that much, but they do have some good nuggets in there of information. They have a bunch of different contributing pastors, some that I really enjoy, some that I'm, eh, whatever on. But, you know, they, they have some great nuggets in there. And one of those nuggets is this. It might be discouraging to know that even Paul, who had experienced Jesus in a personal way and had seen the explosive growth of the early church still struggled so violently with his own heart. But this chapter can also be encouraging for the same reason. When the weight of sin is particularly oppressive, Christians can take heart knowing that all the people struggle. Even the Apostle Paul battled mightily with sin. The New Testament never characterizes Christians as those who do not struggle with sin, but rather, they are those who stay in the fight. And once again, that came from the Jesus Bible published by Zondervan, and I just thought that quote was so perfect, because as I said in the beginning, this could seem somewhat depressing to you. Uh, You know, the, the Christian is done with sin, but sin isn't done with us. Where's the hope in that? The hope is in knowing that we have the power to fight this off, just as we talked about from Romans chapter 6. Now, before we actually start really breaking down verse by verse, I want to address the fact that there are actually many opinions that get floated around about Christians and sin. And a lot of that has to do, honestly, with how they'll interpret this passage as we're about to get into. But some will say it's possible for a Christian to reach a state of sinless perfection. And this is a, that's a doctrine held by some Methodists or in other branches from that denomination. Some others might say that if a Christian sins, then they lose their salvation, which is ridiculous. And then they have to regain it back. Just as ridiculous. But this is what's believed and preached in doctrines of Catholicism. In reality, like I made pretty clear, none of those statements are actually true. And while there are some passages we can look at to show how that isn't true, Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25 is probably one of the most in-depth examples for this. And here we're going to see the Apostle Paul, one of the most profound Christians of all time, talking about his own personal struggle with sin. Now, before we really start breaking in, I want to mention one last thing, and that not everybody might agree with what I just said there, the Apostle Paul talking about his own personal struggle with sin here. There's actually a couple different views surrounding this passage, and honestly, it's not going to be an understatement to say that this is probably one of the more hotly debated passages in all of Romans. Now, while I do have my own view on this passage, and I'm going to be talking as we go through about some of these different views, but just real quick to get them out of the way so you can see, because I want to be completely transparent, because I do believe transparency is important. So let's go ahead and briefly just address some of these passages. And I'm not going to take too long on this, because otherwise we can stay here all day. But number one, first view, this is the majority view. Most reputable scholars believe this. This is mostly believed in the Western side of Christianity. 
people such as the early church father Augustine, Reformation leaders such as Martin Luther, John Calvin also believe this, and they believe that the Apostle Paul is talking about himself giving his own personal experience in first person during the present time. This is often supported by the fact that Paul is speaking, like I said, in the first person and in present tense in that original Greek language. And this would also give a deeper meaning for Christians today to know that the Apostle Paul struggled with the very same things that we struggle with as well, not just something that was regardless happened in the past. View number two. This one is held by some scholars, and it's a minority view, but they do have some Bible verses that kind of support it, specifically focused around chapter 7. They'll say that Paul is referring to his old life as a Jew under the bondage of the law, and making this passage really not so much applicable for believers today, but rather to show us how we used to be as unbelievers. They'll often cite that the first 13 verses of chapter 7 were highly focused on the law and the unregenerate person, and they'll also point out that there is no mention of the Holy Spirit as you read through the last half of chapter 7, and that also Paul, as a Jew, wanted to keep the law, and he struggled with this, and he hated the very fact that he could not keep it. Now, those first two views are really the views that have the most credibility to them. Once again, I believe that first one to be the most true, but I'll briefly go over just a couple other views that some people have on this. I'm not going to get in depth because, once again, go all day on it if we wanted to. So a third view is that uh, the Apostle Paul is referring solely to an unbeliever here. Uh, fourth view, and this is mostly held by Pentecostals and other branches of Wesleyan theology, they'll say that Paul is describing someone who is a believer, but they never received the Holy Spirit baptism or what they would call the second work of grace. Uh, fifth view is saying that this is referring to only a new believer or maybe a spiritually immature believer. There is an even less agreed on sixth view, which believes the Apostle Paul is talking about what sometimes is referred to as a carnal Christian. That's going to be a whole nother debate. I can go all day on that one. And then lastly, the least held view in this, like I said, when I say least, I mean very small minority. I've never actually met anybody that thought this. But it was mentioned in some of my research, and that is that the Apostle Paul could be talking about a legalistic Christian or a Christian, you know, th this is mostly associated with, you know, independent fundamental Baptist churches or maybe, uh, you know, some oneness Pentecostals and things of that nature. So now that we got those varying different views out of the way, and like I said, we will talk a little bit more about it as we go through these passages. I just wanted to get that out of the way so that once again, you'd be completely transparent. And like I said, while I do believe the first two views point out some good points, I fully support that first view because when we read this passage and we see the Apostle Paul pointing to how joyfully he concurs with the law, how he has the willing to do good, and he has a hatred for sin, these are all characteristics of a Christian. Non-believers are not typically known for possessing those qualities. Genesis 6-5 says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Or another in Romans chapter 3, 10-13, quoting the Old Testament, saying that we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. 
As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who understands. There are none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Lastly, as we read through chapter 7, note how the Apostle Paul makes a distinction between himself and his flesh as almost, excuse me, like two separate entities. If this were directed to unbelievers as unbelievers, they would be in the flesh, as he mentions later on in Romans chapter 8, and no distinction would have been made. These facts, to me, make it obvious that Paul is pointing to himself in the present time of writing this, thus making it applicable for all Christians today. Regardless of which side you're on, I do encourage you once again to study these things on your own. Make your own determination. I always encourage you to keep listening, even if you disagree, because there are many good truths that we can all agree on inside this passage. And once again, I'm always open for a healthy debate in Iron Sharpens Iron session. And if you ever have some issues with that, by all means, you can write us, you can hit us up. We're on Twitter, Facebook, you can email us, ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. Let's talk about these things. I'm willing to, uh, because this isn't just me talking here. I I would love to have good conversations uh, and grow from them and grow more in that good grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, with all of that introduction being said, let us finally go ahead and start breaking down the passage verse by verse. And may the Holy Spirit give us insight and application from these words. All right, so starting at verse 14. And the apostle writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. All right, we're going to stop right there because this whole first verse, depending on how you view this, this is going to change how you're going to read the rest of the passage. So I'm going to be really careful here as I break this down almost word for word uh, because, like I said, this is this is the opening statement here in which so many people build their theology for the what follows. So it's really important to go through this thoroughly. So number one here, we're going to see that Paul acknowledges the fact that the law is spiritual, meaning it comes from God, and it's so much more than just words written on a tablet or a step-by-step instruction guide. There's actual meaning behind that. We talked about that last week. Now also note here that Paul says, I am of flesh, but I am of flesh. What he did not say, and what many people confuse sometimes, is he they might read, but I am in the flesh. He didn't say that. He said, I am of flesh. What he is referring to here is his physical body. I am of flesh, meaning I am a human being and I have a physical body. Sometimes people read it as I am in the flesh, which we know through other passages means your inherent sin nature. I believe we talked about it last time, but there are multiple ways to use or read, I guess, the word flesh when we're reading our Bible. Sometimes it's referring to our physical bodies, and other times it's referring to our sin nature. Here, I believe Paul is specifically talking about our physical bodies, and I want to dive really deep into this word flesh here to kind of show why I believe in this verse, verse 14, he's specifically talking about our physical bodies bodies. One of the big reasons being the Greek word used here in verse 14 for flesh. 
Now, once again, uh, pardon my pronunciation, but the Greek word used for flesh here in verse 14 is the word sarkinos, which in other sections we see it being used as referring to a sinful body or spiritual immaturity. If Paul were referring to a non-believer's sin nature, he would have used the Greek word sarkikos, S-A-R-K-I-K-O-S, which is more used to describe sinful desires, not sinful flesh. And a good example of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'll go ahead and read it. I will mention the first time Paul says the word flesh in this passage, he's referring to physical body. The second two times he mentions it, he's talking about the sin nature or sinful desires, not really the body. And I hope that's kind of made plain as we read through it. Because once again, like I said, all these words mean flesh. It comes from one root word, and that's the word sarks. And there's a couple variations of it. And it all basically means flesh. But Paul uses it in multiple different ways. So here is the example. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 1 through 4. And I, brethren could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, sarkinos, men of physical bodies, as infants to Christ. In other words, spiritual immaturity. Verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly, This is sarkikos. This is sin nature. You're still operating in a sin nature. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, that's those desires, you are not fleshy, sarkikos, sin nature, and you are not walking like mere men. For when one says, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Now, in this passage, Paul was kind of chewing them out for for saying, oh, I follow this person, I follow this person. No, 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 we all need to follow Jesus. But this was a prime example of Paul using those two different Greek words, all referring to the same thing, not referring to the same thing, but, you know, essentially it all means flesh. But he had two different Greek words there, meaning one for our sin nature and one for our physical bodies. Now, (laughs) I know I spent a lot of time in this, and I hope your head is not spinning as you go through. Please go do your own research on this if you're confused. But I think this is really, really important in understanding the proper context of this passage. By the use of the specific word that sarkinos, flesh, human body, we can draw a strong conclusion. Although it's not 100% finite, I'll never say that because ultimately that's up to God, we can see that Paul is referring to himself in the present tense. And once again, if he wasn't referring to himself in the present tense, if he was referring to his past life, he would have opted to use the other Greek word, that sarkikos, talking about sin nature, because that's what we were in before we were Christians. As Christians, we still have to operate inside our sarkinos, our physical bodies, but we no longer operate in a sarkikos, a sin nature with sinful desires. The only sinful desires a Christian has are ones that are built inside our flesh. Okay, I really 
hammered and pounded that. And once again, I hope you're not confused by anything that I just said. It can get really confusing. I mean, trust me, when I was studying this, I was sitting over here for hours and hours and hours just racking my brain going through trying to get to the root of this and figure out what exactly Paul was doing. But let's go ahead and continue on. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Now here, this is where we see the real dilemma. Paul is going to show the difference between his true desire, which comes from his spirit, his innermost being, and this is all due to the Holy Spirit, and his actions, which come from his sinful, physical body, a.k.a. his flesh. As the Reformation Study Bible actually says, he put, he can analyze it, but he can't fully explain it. That's the sense that we're getting out of this. He can analyze what's going on, but he just can't fully explain it. And I think that's made very evident when you read through this. Verse 16, but if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Here it is almost that as if the apostle starts to dissect his condition now. And another way to say this would be, but since I hate my own sinful actions, this shows that I in fact agree with God's word. Verse 17, so now I am no longer the, uh, so I, (laughs) sorry, verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but the sin that dwells in me. Here, Paul is drawing a line between his true self, the person Jesus Christ redeemed, and the man he once was, which still has an effect on his physical body. I think it's also important to point out that Paul is not saying, uh, he's not absolving himself from the sins that he still commits, but rather he is showing how sadly powerful sin is. It's also of note that some critics would say that Paul here is supporting something known as Greek dualism, which of course is not true. Greek dualism is what actually gave rise to Gnosticism, which was a belief that the body is evil, but the spirit is good, and therefore any sins ever committed were not the accused's fault. This is honestly ridiculous to believe, Uh, and ridiculous to believe that the Apostle Paul was supporting this because in many other passages, he makes clear that when a person sins, they are responsible for it. And verse 14 of this chapter is the perfect example for that. Uh, Another side note is the Greek adverb used here for no longer signifies a permanent change. Not something that's flimsy, that can break away. In other words, once God has changed you, once God has saved you, It's permanent. You can't lose your salvation. You're not going to be unborn again. You're not going to be made into the old creature that you once were. You're already a new creation in Christ Jesus, and that change is permanent. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Paul is making it known that in his flesh, his physical body, still latches on to sin, that there is nothing good in it. It is an unredeemed thing that will one day perish until the Lord returns and gives us a new body that is sinless. 
once again here in verse 18, Paul is reiterating that his true desire is to do good, but his flesh is preventing him from it. That This doesn't mean that it is a losing war, as depressing as this sounds. It doesn't mean that it is a losing war. And once again, I remind you of Romans chapter 6 and of 2 Corinthians 5, where it shows that we are new. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and we now have the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to fight against sin. But sadly, until that day we are with Christ in heaven, sin is always going to be a part of us in this physical life. The results are in fact that this this body that we have, the results are in it. That the very fact that this body will one day perish. Sometimes newer Christians have expressed confusion and discouragement that even though we are now saved and we are made alive in Jesus Christ, there are some things from their former life that continue to come back and haunt them. Old sins that they latched onto, old addictions that they had, that they thought that they would be freed from the minute that they accepted Jesus as their Savior. And often I'll tell them that while our spirit has been made alive in Christ, we are still stuck in this body, which is still addicted to the same things it was before and bearing the same fruits of sin as it did before. I'll often use the example of smoking for this. You know, picture someone who has smoked for 40 years of their life. Their lungs are blackened and being destroyed. And then one day they believe in Jesus. Amen. And they are now a Christian, a new creation in Christ. And they suddenly hate their desire to smoke. But sadly, their body is still addicted to that nicotine and tobacco and other chemicals that they put in that cigarette. And every cigarette that they smoke, they're angry with themselves. And, 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 and they, they hate the fact that they're doing it. But worst of all, their lungs are still in this destroyed condition. Now, obviously, God can renew those lungs if he so desires. But we also know that doesn't always happen because it's not always in his plan. Contrary to popular belief, or or at least the teachings of, of Bethel Church, it's not always God's will to heal every single Christian physically while on this earth. And this person who we talked about, the smoking person, is their body is still reaping the consequences of sin in their life from destroying their body through cigarettes, even after being saved. Now, you can apply this analogy with, with many other sins. Just go ahead and fill in the blank. But what I was getting at is the very fact that Past sins, before we are Christian, still dwell inside this body. And the results of those sins lead to death. Whether it was lying, whether it was stealing, whether it was smoking cigarettes, whether it was you, you name it. That's still inside your bodies. And like I said, God absolutely has the power to heal that and reverse those effects and make things new again. And one day that will happen. When Christ returns, we'll get that sinless, perfect body with no sin, no disease, no nothing. But it's not always going to happen on this physical earth. It's all in God's plan. 
To reference uh, John MacArthur once more, he said that our body is like a base camp for sin. (laughs) And honestly, I kind of view it like a base camp in enemy territory. In other words, the sin that we have in our body is an enemy territory because, you know, we as Christians, once again, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We own this body. This is ours. And we present it to Christ. So that sin, that base camp that's inside our physical bodies, it's an enemy territory. And we need to treat it like that. We need to go into that base camp and destroy it. Just like it talked about in Romans 6. Don't present your bodies as instruments for unrighteousness, for sin, but rather present your bodies to God for righteousness, good works. Present it to God for his glory. It's going to be a struggle. And like I keep reiterating, it's a struggle we're going to have for the rest of our natural lives or until Christ returns. But just remember that hope that one day we will get that new body free of sin, free of temptation, free of pain, free of suffering, free of sickness, free of disease, and all the other negative things that go along with this fallen world. Verse 20, But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then that the principle of evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Once again, Paul is drawing a line between his true self and his inner man, drawing that clear distinction. This is two separate entities, the redeemed person and the fallen flesh. Once again, this is not to say that he is absolving himself from the sins that he commits, but rather showing that this is not of the new creation that God has made, but rather just the remnants of his old self which are in his physical body. I think I've said that 20,000 times now in 20,000 different ways, but I can't bring that up enough to help people understand. Verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That word inner man is so important. That's talking about his true self. The word inner man is referring to his true self, the person that Christ redeemed, the new person he is made into. And note he also says that his true self loves God's law and fully agrees with it, or in his words, concur with the law of God. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Yet again, Paul draws that line between his redeemed body, his redeemed, or not redeemed body, sorry, his redeemed self, his inner man, and his physical body. He says that his members or his body sees a different law going on in it, and that's that law of sin. And this law being the one that wants to obey the sinful desires. These sinful desires that come from his body wage war against the law of his mind, or in other words, what he knows to be good and true, and that is God's law. He even shows that sin is a powerful force. And he likens his body to a prison, taking him prisoner. Now it seems as if there's no hope. And Paul in desperation just ends up crying out in the middle of this passage, just as the same as we would, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? 
or some translations read, from the body of this death. And here comes the answer in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul gives immediate praise to God here, who frees us from the body of death, which one day, once again, we will get rid of. Not only that, but he gives us the ability to fight back. God gives us the ability to fight back against our sinful bodies all through the power of the Holy Spirit, which dwells in every single believer. Lastly, Paul shows the final separation, showing that there are two sides to him, the new man freed by Jesus and the old man, which is now dead. It's been buried with Christ, but sadly still has an impact on our physical body. Now, before we wrap this up, and I know this can be such a confusing passage for some people, and, and maybe I made it worse. I don't know. <laughs> I hope I did not. Uh, because I, I, I love the truth and I want people to understand. So sometimes I do explain maybe a little bit more in depth than I need to. But I hope you got the gist out of this. And it's important to note that this letter, Romans 7, doesn't end with chapter 7. This message would not be complete without Romans chapter 8. Because as I said, Paul didn't write chapter 7 and said, okay, I'm going to take a break for a few years. No, it's one continuous thought. We just, as humans, put chapters and verses on there, so that way we can make things more easily referenceable. Chapter 8 completes chapter 7. We talked about a lot of stuff here that makes people feel hopeless. Like, oh, I'm just going to sin anyways. And honestly, I believe Paul knew that. And the Holy Spirit definitely knew that. And that's why the very next verse in Romans 8 opens up with, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is exactly what we are going to be talking about next time as we dive into Romans chapter 8. Once again, I, I pray and hope that this didn't make you feel hopeless. I pray and hope that you understood what I was talking about as I reiterated myself 30,000 different times in 30,000 different ways. And I pray and hope that you will read Romans 8 after reading Romans 7 and find out why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Y'all have a wonderful one. God bless. See you next time.